Good morning, everyone. And uh, as I told the people earlier, I can neither confirm nor deny, and thank you for not mentioning it, the uh, persistent rumour that I may have more grey hairs than I had last week. I think actually they're turning white, but uh, never mind. Uh, it would be remiss of me as we prepare to open God's Word this morning not to acknowledge the unique and difficult and painful background that's brought us here today. Uh, I also want to acknowledge the uh, amazingly on-message message that Pastor Graham shared with us last week. Uh, I think his big picture, very frank analysis of what's brought us to this state of affairs should be and will be a memorable springboard for how and where we go as we work through this period of transition in which we find ourselves. I think last Sunday was supposed to be kind of a vision Sunday, which I think it was. Peacekeepers, peacemakers. If that was vision Sunday, then uh, I thought today might be a useful transition Sunday. So first Vision Sunday, now Transition Sunday. And by way of transition to our actual scheduled message for today from the Book of Romans, I was reminded of something that happened just a few months ago uh, at home when my wife tried to print something. It was a document that she'd been working on for some time and came time to print. Uh, and you know that feeling? It was here yesterday. <laughs> Where has this file gone? And it wasn't just her file, it was a whole bunch of my documents as well. The, we woke up and there they were, gone. Um, I won't bore you with the rest of the story, the, um, the quotes on getting a hard drive uh, looked at, no guarantee of anything, just... Oh. Um, but it did remind me of something that's important out there in computer land and I think maybe necessary here in church land as well. It's what you do... You, when you're having trouble with your computer, you set a restore point. You've heard of a restore point? When everything's going haywire and your computer's not doing what it usually does, you know something's just not happy, you can set a restore point. It's a safe setting you can return to. When everything's going badly, you can recall that restore point with confidence and say, okay. I know my data's all sorted here, and so this is my new launching point. And I think that should be, has to be, today for us. I know we've had a rough few weeks. We've had precious people who have taken time out. And so we need to throw out an anchor and say to ourselves, say to each other, that today we're setting a restore point as a church. Because we can't go back. But we can go forward and we do need each other to do that. Which is why it's so amazingly fitting that we continue our Roman series titled True Worship in Community. And that's a great message anytime, but this message has been scheduled for this Sunday way back from the beginning when Pastor Graham first organised the preaching series. As we go forward today no mystery or anything about where we're going, because I have the title for the message given to me as well. It's Clothed with Christ. That's where we're headed this morning. 
But how did we get here to Romans chapter 13, halfway through? Let's just fill in the, the background, the backstory. Seems like forever ago that we were doing this, but it was only a few weeks ago. This series on true worship in community has jumped into Romans at the deep end, as it were. Chapter 12, Apostle Paul has begun to build not only on those first gospel truths that he laid out in the beautiful first eight chapters, but particularly on the bedrock of chapters 9 through 11, which are all about God's sovereign and sacred commitment to his people Israel. Three whole chapters he spends recalling God's promises to the Old Testament nation of Israel. And Paul does this primarily as, as his exhibit A, evidence that God can be trusted to keep his word. That God's character and historical record is perfect, unimpeachable, and therefore absolutely worthy of our worship. So now, chapters 9 through 11, that deal in detail with God's commitment to the nation of Israel, become the wound-up spring for Paul's huge therefore statement in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Remember it? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, based on chapters 9 through 11, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, your logical service. It's that verse, Romans 12 verse 1, that enormously powerful and historically loaded, therefore, that is the challenge that's going to launch us into our series. It's done that already. But what does it mean for us? What does it imply? What does God expect and, dare I say, demand for his church going forward, here, now, today, as we seek to exercise and experience true worship in community. I need to, you to keep in mind that today's section, Romans 13, 8 through 14, is connected to that hinge verse there back in 12.1. Because Paul immediately follows up his call to reasonable service in 12.1 with the next verse's summary statement that tells us the mechanics of how that reasonable service is going to happen. How is it going to be made possible and why it's a worthy goal to worship a worthy God. So Romans 12 and 2, Paul follows it up with, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And Paul continues on, brings us all the way through chapter 12, chapter 13, getting very specific, very practical in his applications that culminate in today's challenge in the last verse of our passage where we're exhorted to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, be clothed with Christ. Because that's what a living sacrifice looks like. Being clothed with Christ is the means, it's the way we execute or carry out or live out our reasonable service. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ is God's appointed way of proving and experiencing his good and acceptable and perfect 
will. The very things he's exhorted us to do back there. So, we pick up today in Romans 13.8. In verse 8, he's already halfway through, obviously, chapter 13, which is a very practical treatise and challenging instruction on Christian duty. And for those of you who like to know where it is we're going, our first heading dealing with Romans 13, 8 through 10, is that true worship in community is only possible when we have a proper perspective on our call to duty. So the first seven verses, chapter 13, Paul has dealt with a Christian's duty towards authority and specifically to our rulers in the government. And in a nutshell, Paul says, we should submit to the government. Because that's the structure that God has put in place to run his world during this period of his world's history. 8 to 14, the second part, Paul is moving to the second aspect of Christian duty, which is our duty towards everybody else. And Paul more meaningfully sums up our duty towards our neighbour in a nutshell when he says we should love them. Hence, Romans 13 and 8. Owe nothing, owe no one anything, same thing, owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, Paul, the biblical scholar, rabbi, Paul makes a masterful transition between the two spheres of duty. He's made his case for submission of government to government and the consequent requirements to pay up, as in verse 7, render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honour to whom honour. Now in verse 8, he continues his theme of Christians paying their dues and remaining debt-free by just panning out his lens, like they do in the movies all the time now. You have the drone up there, and we can take it all in. And so he's including other spheres of our daily interactions. Owe no one anything except to love one another. And do note that Paul is not making an all-encompassing ban on any kind of debt. Sometimes overzealous preachers will come to that conclusion, or overzealous uh, Christians will. Of course, other scriptures encourage us to keep short accounts and to have a, a good testimony with those outside. But he's linking love to the law. That's little l law, the Jewish law. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then to further explain his principle, he immediately lists the law's interpersonal requirements. Verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, not murder, not steal, etc. He ends verse 9 by quoting the Jewish law's own summary statement taken directly from the Old Testament law in Leviticus 19 and 18. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. This is Paul, right? Apostle Paul. But he wasn't always Apostle Paul, was he? He was Rabbi Paul, a trained rabbi. He studied under the famous Rabbi Gamaliel. And Paul knew not only Gamaliel's teaching, the, the history of the Jewish faith to that point, Paul knew the teachings of Jesus. 
himself, who on more than one occasion confirmed that love for God, commandments 1 through 4, and love for our neighbour, commandments 5 through 10, are the core essence of what God requires of his people. Traditional Jewish teaching tells of an even earlier, very famous rabbi, in Jewish circles at least, known as Hillel the Elder, and he lived a generation before Paul. And Rabbi Hillel was once challenged, this non-Jewish, this gentle man, Gentile, sorry, he may have been gentle, but he was a Gentile, a non-Jewish man, asked to be converted to Judaism if, he put it to Hillel the Elder, if the Torah, the Jewish written law, could be explained to him while he stood on one foot. In other words, get on with it. Hillel apparently thought for a moment and then said to the man, and again drawing on and summarising Leviticus 19, 18, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and study. So for Rabbi Paul, this concept was a fundamental, foundational truth. You may have heard it referred to as the golden rule, in fact. And it's acknowledged in most of the world's major religions. The United Nations apparently has on permanent display a poster acknowledging this love your neighbour principle as being present in 13 major world religions. Part of the statement that was read out when the poster was presented back in 2002 said, and I quote, we believe that these golden rules, also known as the law of reciprocity, must be obeyed by all nations, and that in the interest of global security, no nations or leaders may exempt themselves. Whatever is hateful or injurious to ourselves, we must not do to others. Unless we uh, underestimate the seriousness of their statement, it goes on. Failure to adhere to these moral principles brings great hazards to all, ranging from unsustainable development practices to environmental crises and nuclear threats with their inherent potential for catastrophe. Nations must treat other nations as they wish to be treated. And this universal principle of love thy neighbour even trickles down to some African tribal religions. In a quote that might rival our own Steve Early's Ethiopian quandary over something to do with a donkey, do you remember that back from our Ecclesiastes series last year? I learned from the, uh, the, the fount of all wisdom, Wikipedia, that the Yorubu tribe put the golden rule in very practical terms along the lines of, one who is going to take a pointed stick to pinch a baby bird should first try it on himself to feel how it hurts. Now, is that wisdom or is that wisdom? Back to the Bible. It's interesting to note that Paul had already reminded the law-loving Galatians of this truth in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. And I quote, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Interesting aside, 
Christian liberty is the next item we're going to deal with uh, next week in Romans chapter 14. But anyway, Christian liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. And this is not just Apostle Paul. The Apostle James, in his letter to the scattered Christians of his day, called his readers to keep what he referred to as the royal law. James 2.8, if you really fulfil the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbour as yourself, you do well. So it occurs to me that now is probably a really good time for all of us to ask ourselves the question, how have I been scoring recently in the do-no-harm department? Verse 10 of Romans 13 is a great summary of the challenge to us. Not in some theoretical playground in the sky, but here and now in the trenches of seeking to restore and recover for some really hurtful and unthinking words that have been thrown around amongst us. Love does no harm to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. And notice I said, we should be asking ourselves, how have I been scoring? Not how has my neighbour been scoring? We're really good at recognising love debts in those around us. But this timely notice is being served on the same let every soul audience that Paul's calling to account in the very first verse of this chapter 13. You people who have Bibles, you'll see it there in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. Let everyone, let every person, let every soul. Can I hear a loud amen from anyone who has a Bible in their hand and will verify the verses addressed to everyone? Yes? Amen. amen. It's really important because this is where the rubber meets the road and we get to review how we're going with the Romans 12 exhortation to be living sacrifices. Are we really being transformed by the renewing of our mind? Are we really proving in our own experience the good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Is it coincidence or is it providence that we're being challenged at this time by this passage in this series called True Worship in Community? Does God know how to hit the spiritual nail on the head or does God know how to hit the spiritual nail on the head? And notice I'm avoiding reminding you that God's son was a trained carpenter so he certainly knows a thing or two about nail hitting. And let's not fool ourselves that we're doing well and fulfilling God's purposes because we're feeling in love. Except for those who got engaged last week, I saw, and you can just bask in feeling in love and more strength to you. The rest of us, we're probably still feeling in love, but not quite as intense as you are. That's how it works. And not because we've been loving on the lovable people. Aren't I a good boy? Because I love the people that I have around me, all my friends. Well, God is more interested in how we're growing in character, how our personal spiritual transformation is going, how we're doing loving the unlovely people. 
Maybe even those enemies that Paul referred to at the end of chapter 12. The ones who probably do deserve scorn and ridicule, but with whom God calls us to live peaceably and even go the extra mile and bless. So next time you're about to respond to the gnarly neighbour that God has allowed into your life, ask God to help you stop and check yourself. Check your intended response. Run it through your portable, internal, do-no-harm filter. And if your intended response is not a good fit within the do-no-harm framework, then it's probably because there's not a lot of love in it. That's a good time to reshape your response. Reframe it. Let your renewed and transformed mind come up with a WWJD fix. Put on your what-would-Jesus-do thinking cap and come up with a do-no-harm response that you can be sure God would give his stamp of approval to. It's not a guarantee you'll be accepted, but you can rest easy knowing you were trying to honour this important principle. So our first heading, dealing with Romans 13, 8 through 10, has been that true worship in community is only possible when we have a proper perspective on our call to duty. The second heading, as we move to verses 11 through 13, is that true worship in community is only possible when we have a proper perspective on the urgency of loving well. Because this do-no-harm response on its own is not a home run. It's only first base, minimum chips. The real challenge, the full really Christian response is going the second mile. Ramping up our neighbourly interactions to be shining lights that have people scratching their heads and saying, that's weird, where did that come from? That wasn't what I was expecting. What is going on here? That's what an above and beyond positive response to neighbourly challenges is about. And it's what Paul is looking for when he writes in verse 11 of Romans 13, and do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. It's not just prior preparation that prevents poor performance. Paul's making the case that proper perspective also prevents poor, poor performance. He's saying, do this, love one another, knowing the time, the urgency. Wake up, sleepy heads. And we're not just talking about that general reminder that we should all be aware that the master might return at any moment, demand an accounting from his servants, that has been true ever since Jesus ascended into heaven. He will return without warning. He will demand an accounting. So we've always had that as an incentive to be found faithful and about the master's business. But I think Paul's exhortation here is timely and timeless for another reason, in that our very salvation, to which he refers, is a multifaceted jewel, if you like. And appreciating that, and the various aspects of our salvation should serve, can serve, as an inspiration for active service. Our salvation, he says, is nearer than when we first believe. What's he saying? Well, salvation, it's just so simple. 
or it's so profound. Our salvation is an achieved fact. When Jesus said, it is finished, he wasn't just referring to his work and indeed his physical life. He was giving us the basis for our salvation as an accomplished fact. The moment we believe that he died in our place, we pass from eternal death and hopelessness to eternal life and hope. And that can be and kind of should be a wow moment. Like I have changed from all of that that was back there into all of that that awaits us. That's accomplished. That's a fact. But our salvation is also a continuing fact. It's an accomplished fact. It's also a continuing fact. The books have been changed. So our, our spiritual status has been permanently and irrevocably changed, and the books in heaven forever record us now in the eternal life column. But we should be awake and alive to the fact that these are our days of opportunity and service. If you're a Dead Poets Society fan, you'll know that the scholars would be standing on their desks at this point and saying, Carpe diem, carpe diem, seize the day. Had to be there. Seize the day, make the most of our opportunities to love well, to live like a saved sinner, running with our eyes, looking ahead to the finish line. Because Paul's also reminding us that our salvation is a future fact. So it's achieved, it's accomplished, it's continuing, but it is also a future fact, which is why our salvation is nearer than when we first believed, historically. Our completed salvation, based on the proven goodness and previously fulfilled promises of God, Romans 9 through 11, is a certain and assured hope, but it's yet not a realised or finalised reality. Israel does have a future with God. We have a future with God. From Paul's perspective, I guess he may have had some personal as well as a historical sense when he goes on to say in verse 12 of Romans 13, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. He was a saved sinner. He had a black history. And we who have been rescued from hopelessness and maybe very bleak and black darknesses of the life we lived before Jesus rescued us can surely testify, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, groping, in the dark mire of sin, but now I see. Paul knew about that. And historically, he lived in the time of the Romans. That's why we're in the book of Romans. And the Romans weren't nice guys. They were people who are known, their, their place in history, are those who had the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And you know how they achieved that? Asterix, any Asterix fans out there? I see that hand. Jonathan? 
they were they were oppressors. They 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 kept the peace. They were dark days. And just as the first century Jews had hoped that Jesus would free them from Roman rule, so too the Christians knew that Jesus had promised them that he would return and take them out of here to be with him forever. But Paul's also setting the scene in a literary sense by preparing us for where he's heading in these remaining few verses. So let's pull some of these threads together under our final heading that says as we move to verses 12 through 14 that true worship in community is only possible when we have, yes, a proper perspective on our call to duty, proper perspective on the urgency of loving well, but thirdly, a proper perspective on the sufficiency of Jesus as Lord and Master. And this is where Paul helps us to think about and relate to the daily walk with Jesus as Lord and Master by introducing the idea of getting properly dressed, by being clothed with Christ, as per our message for today. He starts, though, by reminding us that this is not a cover-up situation. It's not a matter of just covering up or covering over or adding on top to what we're currently wearing. No, first we need to remove the offending and debilitating suit of shame that we've become used to. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness. So maybe you've heard of these ideas before. In fact, he says, cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armour of light. That probably sounds familiar to you. It's because Paul is just giving a glimpse of some important topics that he's going to deal with at greater length in future in letters to other churches. In particular, five years later to the Christians at Ephesus, where he exhorts them, and these will be familiar verses, Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, Ephesians, be imitators of God. Walk in love. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Yes, Paul says step one is always to cast off the works of darkness. Ephesians 5 and verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then later again in Ephesians 6, Paul again extols the virtues of the armour of light. In the familiar call in Ephesians 6 and verse 11, put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And as you know, he goes on to list the spiritual armour, the belt of truth, shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. The items that the well-prepared and properly kitted out Christian wears and utilises in spiritual battle. Back in Romans 13, 13, Paul continues, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Bang, 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 bang. Six well-driven hits of the nail right on the head, of the issues of his day 
and our day. And remember Paul's writing from the Greek city of Corinth. So it's not hard to make the case that his highly immoral Corinthian surroundings reminded him of the issues and challenges of his day, which I put to you are just as topical and timeless for Adelaide as they were for Rome or Corinth. Are we any less surrounded by temptations to revelry and drunkenness, lewdness and lust, strife and envy than Paul's first century readers? What sort of city can be proud of hosting a garden of unearthly delights and a fringe festival that pushes the boundaries of flagrant immorality right into our faces and our children's faces and our grandchildren's faces and minds just by walking down the street of our city. (laughs) Paul spells it out to the Corinthians when he writes to their church probably a year earlier than he wrote Romans, but the issues are the same. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Bang! King hit right on Adelaide's nail of shame. But what does Paul do? He directs his readers to the one and the same solution of being clothed with Christ and resting in the sufficiency that only his righteousness can provide. To the Corinthian church, Paul continues on, 1 Corinthians 6, Verse 11, the second part, but, don't you love God's buts, but you were washed. You were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. To the church at Rome, Paul writes in Romans 13 and 14 here, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And it seems to me to the church at City Reach Oakton, who seek to experience and demonstrate true worship in community, his command and challenge remain unchanged. Be clothed with Christ. Cast off the cloak of darkness, and have done with cover-ups. Wake up to yourself, Christians, you who name the name of Christ. Be who you are. Love your neighbour. Don't be squeezed into the moulds that the world surrounds and smothers and tempts us with, but be transformed from the inside out by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, for others to see, internal and out there. 
We're nearly done. But we're getting to hopefully what is the sticky bit, the takeaway bit. And it's as simple as I put it to you that if you can start each day, or at least most days, reminding yourself of who you are in Christ, a child of the King of the universe. Is that a wow? Like, I am a child of the King of the universe. When that starts to sink in and permeate through our understanding and appreciation, if we start remembering that we're a child of the King and, and He can see everything and He's given us this trust and He's told us what we should be doing, then we can trust His power. Like he can run the universe, so He knows what He's doing. And He said that He will give us the power, He will do His part by His Spirit to help us to resist and overcome our constant thorns of fleshly desires that only lead us to self-destruction, self-loathing, self-pity, selfishness. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be clothed with Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Can I leave you with this thought, this challenge as we seek to begin the road to recovery from this day, in this church, in this city, that a proper biblical Romans 12 through 13 perspective on our call to duty, on our call to love well, on our call to put on, to cloak ourselves with the sufficiency of our Saviour, our Lord and Master Jesus, that if we can do that, that will stand us in good stead to stand up and stand out as true worshippers in community. Let me pray as we think about that and seek to be the church that God is calling us to be. Let's pray. Father, we pray to you because you're a big God. And we already know that you've done big things in our lives to save us. We thank you that you've given us a written record of that, something we can trust, we can camp on, stand on, foundational stuff. And you've given us a history that we can look at as no other generation before us can do and see what you've been doing. We're, we're kind of near the end, it seems. And we can see that you are in control. Lots of ugly bits in history, lots of shameful bits in history. We can see them. We want to learn the lessons of world history as much as it depends on us. We want to learn the lessons of church history because that hasn't been good either down through the centuries. And here we are. You're still at work and you call us to still be at work. Lord, give us the grace, the wisdom, the love to get through. Thank you.